welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and on this episode, I will be covering a Poirot short story. We're sort of getting two for the price of one here because this story goes by two different titles. The first is The Mystery of the Baghdad Chest. The second is The Mystery of the Spanish Chest. So what is going on here? Well, let's get right into it with the publication history for these two stories. The original version, The Mystery of the Baghdad Chest, which I will officially be calling the Baghdad version for the duration of this episode, that version was first published in the UK in the Strand magazine in January 1932. It wasn't collected in book form in the UK till all the way in 1997 in While the Light Lasts and Other Stories. And then in the U.S., it was first published in the Ladies' Home Journal, also in January 1932, and then collected in book form just a couple of years later in the Regatta Mystery in 1939. Now, the expanded version of The Mystery of the Baghdad Chest is called The Mystery of the Spanish Chest, and I will officially be calling that the Spanish version in this episode. So the Spanish version was first published in the UK in three installments in Women's Illustrated in September and October of 1960, so nearly 30 years after the Baghdad version. And that was just prior to its being included in the collection, The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding and a Selection of Entrees, which was published later that same year in 1960. As far as I can tell, the Spanish version was never serialized in the U.S. It did not appear in the U.S. in book form until all the way in 1997, in fact, in the Harlequin tea set. It's interesting to note that the Spanish version was nearly the titular story uh, for that U.K. collection in which it appeared in 1960. So again, that was the adventure of the Christmas pudding and a selection of entrees. And as I learned from my good friend Mark Aldridge in Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, when it became apparent that there would be no new Christie for Christmas in 1960, due to the fact that Christie was too busy with her theatrical, among other endeavors, uh, there was much thought put into what sort of a short story collection could be published that year in place of a novel, because there had to be something published, of course. Readers couldn't be expected to go two years without a Christie. Christie's agent Edmund Cork suggested publishing Three Blind Mice as the titular story in this collection. That story was, of course, the basis of the play The Mousetrap. And for this reason, Christie actually opposed the idea quite vehemently. She didn't want to spoil the mystery for anyone who hadn't seen the play yet. (laughs) Cut to over 60 years later, and many more people have seen the play than had seen it in 1960. Though in that same spirit, I am actually going to refrain from spoiling the mousetrap on this podcast. Someone contacted me recently asking, why haven't you covered the mousetrap yet? And that's actually something Catherine and I agreed between the two of us years ago, that we would never spoil the mousetrap since it was obviously very important to Agatha Christie not to spoil it for her readers, who of course are all potential playgoers to this day, since you can go to London and see the mousetrap just as you could have in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s (laughs) and aughts and teens and now in the 20s. Can you believe we're living in the 20s? That's just weird. So we're not going to spoil the mousetrap, but I may do a mousetrap episode 
in the future without spoiling the end. Stay tuned on that front. But rather than spoiling the mousetrap, Christie suggested that they turn to the mystery of the Baghdad chest since, and I'm quoting now, I could do a little enlarging of that particular story as it has a lot of meat in it. She also wanted to expand the third floor flat, which I happen to have just covered in my last short story episode, though she never did follow through on this uh, or on expanding that story into a full length novel. It was another idea of hers I got into on that episode, but she did follow through on this expansion. And for a while, the proposed title of this 1960 short story collection was The Mystery of the Spanish Chest and Other Stories. I'll get into exactly why the provenance of the chest changed uh, when I talk about the expansion itself a little later. But alas, the lure of a Christmas tie-in was too much. <laughs> and when Christie expanded the Christmas adventure, aka the theft of the royal ruby, into the adventure of the Christmas pudding, it was just too strong a marketing ploy to pass up. I'm actually not getting that from anywhere. I'm just using my common sense here. There's no way that Collins Crime Club was going to pass up a Christmas tie-in. The world had to have its Christie for Christmas in 1960, after all. And thank goodness for that. But I should also note that this 1960 collection is the first time that Monsieur Poirot and Miss Marple appear in the same book in the UK. The Miss Marple short story, Greenshaw's Folly, is one of the other offerings in that collection. And yet, as Mark Aldridge notes, the way in which the book treats its two detectives is decidedly odd. Nothing is made of their first co-appearance in a British edition, and the first edition doesn't mention either of them on the front or rear covers. That is strange. I will close out my review of this short story's publication history, or I suppose I should say these short stories' publication histories, by noting how odd I find it that my beloved 850-page-plus Poirot omnibus Hercule Poirot, The Complete Short Stories, includes only the Baghdad version and not the Spanish version. It's super odd because the book's editors chose to include only the later expanded versions of Murder in the Muse, Dead Man's Mirror, and The Incredible Theft. They left out the market-basing mystery, the second gong, and the submarine plans, respectively. I think they should have just included both versions in all these cases. That's my opinion. The more the merrier. It was never a truer adage when applied to Poirot content. Just saying. So let's move on now to my puzzle breakdown. And I am going to be using the character names that appear in the Baghdad version as I do this breakdown. There really is nothing that Christie adds puzzle-wise or even really plot-wise to the Spanish version that isn't in the earlier, tighter Baghdad version. I'm getting ahead of myself slightly here, but I actually like the Baghdad version considerably more than the Spanish version for this very reason, despite the fact that I was just praying for more Poirot content at any cost. But more on that in a bit. Let's get into it. Our victim is Edward Clayton, who is a finance man found inside the titular Baghdad chest inside the rooms of his friend, Major Rich. Poor Edward Clayton is doubled up and stabbed through the heart with, quote, a long, thin knife, something like a stiletto. In terms of suspects, well, first up, of course, we have the victim's wife. That would be Margarita Clayton. And she is just oh so beautiful. She's so beautiful that she drives the menfolk crazy. Maybe a little too crazy. 
Yes, I realize that that doesn't actually say anything about her status as a suspect, but all I have to do is use that suggestive tone of voice when I'm reeling off our list of suspects and it will make them sound questionable. (laughs) Next up is Major John Rich. He is a friend of the Claytons and the man with seemingly the easiest access out of all the suspects as the murder happened at his home and with his knife. Also, there's an undeniable attraction between him and Mrs. Clayton. Perhaps they are even in love with each other. I smell a love triangle. So with motive, means, and opportunity all locked down, could he have murdered the husband to be with the wife? Then we have Major Curtis, another friend of the Claytons. Quote, a man of about 40 of soldierly build with very dark hair and a bronzed face. Oh my, a bronzed military man. Bring it on, Agatha. Could Major Curtis also be in love with Mrs. Clayton? Did I mention that Mrs. Clayton is super pretty? Next up is Burgoyne, the manservant of Major Rich, who doesn't really get a physical description, but he is definitely on the premises when this murder happened, whenever that is, exactly. Uh, He too had access and lots of it. And then these last two characters aren't really suspects in the Baghdad version, since we pretty much don't even meet them on the page. They're really little more than window dressing, but in the Spanish version, we do meet them and they are presented as proper suspects. This is one of the few changes Christy makes, (laughs) in fact, between the Baghdad and Spanish versions. So I may as well include them on this list now. So those two characters are Mr. Spence, who is in attendance at the party where the four proper suspects are assembled, all of them unknowingly partying it up beside a corpse in a chest, all except the murderer, of course. And then finally, we have Mrs. Spence, the wife of Mr. Spence, who is also in attendance at this party where the four proper suspects are assembled. Okay, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Hastings and Poirot are chilling. And guess what? Hastings is reading the newspaper because of course he is. Specifically, he's pretending to be disgusted yet secretly delighting in the latest shock headline, which has to do with the gruesome murder of one Edward Clayton, seemingly by his friend Major Rich. The story is getting lots of play because Major Rich hosted a party at which he and his guests played poker and danced a little, All the while, poor Edward Clayton's body was inside this big chest in the very room where all the guests were assembled. And it seems that Major Rich killed Mr. Clayton right before he welcomed in all of his guests, including Mrs. Clayton, who the papers imply was having an affair with Major Rich. And this is all very Edith Thompson, Frederick Bywaters territory. At this point, I feel like that's a reference you should probably get without my having to explain it. But if you would like a little refresher on the Edith Thompson, Frederick Bywaters case, I will point you to an excellent episode of Caroline Crampton's She Done It podcast, where she breaks it all down beautifully. Back to this case, the body wasn't discovered till the next morning when gruesomely Major Rich's manservant Burgoyne noticed, quote, A deep stain discoloring the carpet below and in front of a piece of furniture which Major Rich had brought from the east and which was called the Baghdad chest. And Poirot notes himself at the beginning of the story that the chest may very well have been a sham Jacobean one from the Tottenham Court Road. Nonetheless, the reporter who thought of naming it the Baghdad chest was happily inspired. I like that, given that Christie herself would change the provenance of the chest when she expanded the story. The origin of the chest isn't really important. It's the exotic and mysterious flair that its supposed origin lends that counts, even if that origin is spurious. 
And incidentally, when John Curran actually describes in Agatha Christie's secret notebooks, visiting Greenway for the first time when he began sifting through those notebooks of Christie's, he references various objects that he came across that could be found in Christie's work, including a brass bound trunk that was in the entrance hall at Greenway. So I like the idea that Christie was inspired here by a piece of her own furniture. Hastings comments that one could write a play about such an idea, and you'd better believe that Christie scholar Julius Green, who investigates everything, and I mean everything, having to do with Agatha Christie and the theater, has something to say about this in his book, Curtain Up, Agatha Christie, A Life in the Theater. Hold on, because this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth it. Here's what Julius has to say about this specific moment in the story. In the original version of the story, Hastings comments that the events it concerns would make a good plot for a play, and Poirot responds that it has already been done. Poirot could be referring to Othello, or to the 1928 Patrick Hamilton play Rope, in which party guests are served a buffet from the lid of a trunk containing a dead body. But I suspect that it may in fact be a reference to a short play called Crime, which featured in the first London Grand Guignol season at the Little Theatre. Crime, which premiered in November 1921, starred Sybil Thorndike and her brother Russell, and was written by her husband, Louis Casson. In it, a woman is murdered with a bread knife by an unsavory pair of characters and her body put in a trunk. Due to circumstances beyond their control, they are forced to remain in the room with their victim and fall out between themselves. In their nervousness, they eventually give the game away to a third party and the trunk is opened, exposing her horribly mutilated corpse. In the ensuing fracas, one of the killers shoots the other. The Times was not impressed, saying that there was not a single thrill in the piece and that the corpse was an obvious dummy, although the actors make the best of a bad job. But there was to be a real-life twist to the tale. Russell Thorndike, in his book about his sister's work, tells the tale of a rehearsal at which Sybil became trapped inside the trunk, which did not have air holes, and fainted. So that's just a great anecdote from Julius Green in his chatty book. And that, of course, reminded me of a plot point in this very story, which we'll get to shortly. It also reminds me of that horrifying story about the actor Isla Fisher on the set of the movie Now You See Me, which is about magicians or illusionists, I should say, performing all sorts of dangerous tricks. So apparently she got stuck in this tank of water and was banging on it. And everyone just thought she was acting super well because she was supposed to seem stuck in the tank of water for the scene she was acting out in the movie, but she truly was caught on something. There was some mechanism that wasn't working and she was banging on the glass and they hadn't established a safety signal uh, before she went in the tank. So that's terrifying, but Isla Fisher is fine. Sybil Thorndike was fine as well. <laughs> and the setup of the murder in this story is most definitely macabre and theatrical in the Grand Guignol tradition, which is something that we know Christie could do quite well from time to time. I'll actually just close out this tangent by noting that uh, Julius mentions a little later in his book that Christie actually became friends with the Sybil Thorndike. So I like to imagine Sybil telling Agatha about her near-death experience over tea or maybe neat cream. <laughs> All right, back to the short story. Poirot encourages Hastings to compose his very own drama out of the facts of this case. And of course, Hastings starts by waxing poetic about what a pretty, pretty princess Mrs. Clayton is. Oh, Hastings. We get this keeper of a line from Poirot after he looks at a photo of Mrs. Clayton. Dieu merci, I am not of an ardent temperament. It has saved me from many embarrassments. I am duly thankful. 
you and me both, Poirot, because we need you free and unencumbered for mystery solving, including on this very case, which Hastings then launches into a little awkwardly. He reviews the facts, which include dialogue quotations. I find it hard to believe he would have had access to. The story is a little bit of a mixture between first person Hastings and third person Christie, but let's just note that awkwardness and move along. We learned that Major Rich was an old friend of both Mr. and Mrs. Clayton and that the Claytons were going to spend the evening with him. And now I'm quoting from the text. At about 7.30, however, Clayton explained to another friend, a Major Curtis, with whom he was having a drink, that he had been unexpectedly called to Scotland and was leaving by the 8 o'clock train. Clayton says he'll drop in on Major Curtis to let him know he won't be coming that night, even though his wife will be coming. So Clayton arrives at Major Rich's house at 740, at which time Major Rich is out, but his manservant Burgoyne shows him into the sitting room so that Mr. Clayton can write Major Rich a note. Then about five minutes later, Major Rich calls out to Burgoyne to go get some cigarettes for his guests that evening. And when Burgoyne returns with those ciggies, Major Rich is alone in the sitting room and Burgoyne concludes quite naturally that Mr. Clayton must have left by then. The guests arrived shortly after, i.e. around 8 o'clock, and there was dancing to a phonograph and the playing of poker. And the next morning is when Burgoyne made his grisly discovery by way of the blood having dripped out of the chest and pooled on the floor. He runs out of the flat and fetches the nearest policeman. Major Rich tells the police that he never saw Mr. Clayton the evening before. He never got a note from him or anything like that. He has no idea what's going on. The first he knew of Mr. Clayton going to Scotland was when Mrs. Clayton told him at the party at his house. He is totally clueless, but he is also totally arrested. And there the matter may have stood, if not for the sociable Lady Chatterton, who was one of Poirot's most ardent admirers, and who throws a party that Poirot and Hastings are invited to. We're told that her admiration springs from a case involving the mysterious conduct of a Pekingese, but this can't be the Nemean Lion from The Labors of Hercules, since that wouldn't be published for another seven years. But all this does allow Christie to go on two charming asides in the voice of Hastings. The first is about Poirot's appearance at a party. This is what she writes. To see Poirot at a party was a great sight. His faultless evening clothes, the exquisite set of his white tie, the exact symmetry of his hair parting, the sheen of pomade on his hair, and the tortured splendor of his famous mustaches, all combined to paint the perfect picture of an inveterate dandy. It was hard at these moments to take the little man seriously. The second aside is about how conceited Poirot is, lapping up people's compliments about him instead of pushing them away. Poirot protests, in effect, that he is not English, so why should he pretend not to think well of himself, as the English do? <laughs> and knowing how very English and modest and self-deprecating, almost to a ridiculous degree, Christie herself could be, this is all very self-aware and charming. Uh, it's something the Suchet series very smartly ran with, but we'll get to that later. This also has nothing to do with the mystery. <laughs> so at her party, Lady Chatterton thrusts Poirot at Margarita Clayton, almost literally, and she demands that Poirot help. Margarita, because Margarita is one of Lady Chatterton's dearest friends, and she's in a bind here. So Poirot and Hastings talk to Margarita, and she charms both of them. Poor Hastings is, quote, gratified that she realized my identity, end quote, when she uses Hastings's name without being prompted. Oh, poor Hastings. But she is convinced that Major Rich did not do it, and she implores Poirot to figure out the truth. 
And Poirot tells her to be frank with him, to push past what he implies in his rather chauvinistic way as a woman's instinctual tendency toward prevarication and mendacity, shall we say? This is what he says. It is very necessary for a woman to lie. It is a good weapon. But there are three people, madame, to whom a woman should speak the truth. To her father confessor, to her hairdresser, and to her private detective. I mean, given that Poirot has kind of been all three at some point over the course of the canon, uh, she should definitely level with him. (laughs) He's been a father confessor many, many times over. And if I remember correctly, it is in Murder in Mesopotamia that our narrator Amy Leatherin likens him to a hairdresser. So Margarita does very smartly level with him. And she admits that she is in love with Major Rich, which is why she's convinced that he could not have killed her husband. And she believes that Major Rich is also in love with her, though neither of them has ever spoken about it. They have not acted on their feelings. They're too honorable for that. Also, she did not love her husband. She is bluntly and brutally honest about that. Much to her credit. Poirot doesn't really let up. He prods her about past incidents involving men losing their mind over her. Apparently, there's one poor man she describes as that dreadful little man who shot himself. And then there was a duel that involved at least one Italian. This is what she has to say about that. I was so thankful the man wasn't killed. (laughs) Uh, Remember that glancing reference to a duel in the story, because it will definitely come up again in the Suchet adaptation. So Poirot and Hastings visit Major Curtis next. This is the other friend who is not arrested for murder. And Major Curtis confirms that he had a drink with Mr. Clayton before Clayton went to Major Rich's flat to tell him he wouldn't be able to make the party that evening. Major Curtis also clarifies that Margarita and Major Rich danced together that night, as did the Spences. There were five of them there, and as the odd man out, Major Curtis is the one who put the records on while the dancing was happening. Then Poirot and Hastings move on to the Spences. This is their big moment, so I'll just read it out. Our next visit was to Mr. and Mrs. Spence. Only Mrs. Spence was at home, but her account of the evening tallied with that of Major Curtis, except that she displayed a slight acidity concerning Major Rich's luck at cards. That is all we get from the Spences in the Baghdad version of this story. Then Poirot pulls some strings at Scotland Yard by way of one Jimmy Jap. I love that he gets name-checked in this version, twice in fact. And Poirot and Hastings get a sit-down with Burgoyne, the manservant. And crucially, this sit-down takes place in Major Rich's rooms, i.e. in the very room where the very chest in question still sits. So we get a closer look at the chest, and Poirot learns something in this moment that seems to excite him. I'm quoting again from the text. Those holes there, they are curious. One would say that they had been newly made. The holes in question were at the back of the chest against the wall. There were three or four of them. They were about a quarter of an inch in diameter and certainly had the effect of having been freshly made. So that's interesting. Poirot also asks Burgoyne if he noticed whether anything had been moved in the room on the night of the party, specifically when Burgoyne came back with those cigarettes for his employer. So that was early in the night before Major Rich's guests arrived. And Burgoyne admits that there was a screen that had been moved so as to block the chest from view for most of the room. Curious. From the doctor who examined the body, Poirot and Hastings learned that Mr. Clayton must have died between seven and nine, which seems to effectively mean that the murder had to have taken place between 7.40 and 8 o'clock. We know that Mr. Clayton didn't arrive until 7.40, and then we know it was around 8 o'clock when all of Major Rich's guests arrived at his flat. 
So after a whole bunch of investigating, quite efficiently told over the course of just a few pages, it seems that Major Rich really must have done it. Apparently, he got into an argument with Mr. Clayton, probably about Mrs. Clayton, and then he stabbed him with his own stiletto dagger in the room, concealed the body in the chest because his manservant was there and his guests were about to arrive. And then Major Rich proved himself to be a major dum-dum by neglecting to dispose of the body after his guests left, which doesn't really make sense why he would have just left the body in the chest and gone to bed and effectively waited for his manservant for going to find the body the next morning. But whatever, right? All's good. Case closed. Well, of course not. It is more complicated than that. And we are in an Agatha Christie classic puzzle mystery here. We have a bridge of clues to bridge us on over to the world as it actually is. Clue number one. Oh, happy day. It is a physical clue. Those holes in the chest. Now, why would there be freshly made holes in this Baghdad chest? Well, the deduction here is a little tricky, but I think not impossible. One reason you might drill a hole in something is to allow air in, right? That's not too hard a leap to make. So those holes very well could be breathing holes, couldn't they? This leads us into clue number two, which is a very general one, but in its generality, a very classic Christie clue. And that would be never make an assumption in a Christie story, including the most basic assumptions. Perhaps I should say especially the most basic assumptions. And there is an assumption here that everyone makes, which is that the body of Edward Clayton was placed in the chest by the murderer. Now, the chest is where the body bled out to put it bluntly. So we know the body must have been put in the chest very quickly after it was stabbed, since there wasn't any blood anywhere else in the room. But is that definitely the way that it had to play out? And our deduction is so devious, and it's the brilliant concept at the core of this puzzle, because what if the body placed itself in the chest? Which is to say, what if Mr. Clayton, our victim, got into the chest of his own accord? And this is actually the one time that I'm going to quote from the Spanish version in my plot summary, because I think that the Spanish version does a better job of explaining the brilliance of this clue. So I'm going to quote from Poirot now during his denouement in the Spanish version. Here's what he says. We started all of us by an assumption that was not true. The assumption that there were only two persons who had the opportunity of putting the body in the chest. That is to say, Major Rich or William Burgess. Side note, William Burgess is the name of Burgoyne in the Spanish version. But we were wrong. There was a third person at the flat that evening who had an equally good opportunity to do so. And who was that? Demanded Miller skeptically. Another side note, Miller is the Inspector d'Histoire in the Spanish version. Sorry, Jap, you got cut out. Miller continues now, the lift boy? No, Arnold Clayton. Final aside, yes, Christie decided to change Clayton's name from Edward to Arnold when she wrote the Spanish version. I don't know why. <laughs> Let's finish out this quote now. What? Concealed his own dead body? You're crazy. Naturally not a dead body. A live one. In simple terms, he hid himself in the chest. And what I love about this is that it's borne out by the physical evidence, which isn't even a point Christie hits in either version of this story. The blood is only found in the chest, not elsewhere in the room or on anyone's clothes. And that's because there was no blood till Clayton got in the chest. He was only stabbed once he was already in there. 
as the physical evidence in the room attests. Okay, so that is a big deduction, but it leads us to a very obvious question, which we will tackle in clue number three. Why? Why on earth would Edward Clayton willingly secrete himself in a large chest? It must have been super uncomfortable in there for starters. And our deduction here is that we would do well to remember all that nonsense about a suicide and a duel fought for Margarita Clayton's love. She really is the type of woman men go gaga over, and perhaps her husband is no exception. Perhaps Mr. Clayton was spying on Mrs. Clayton at this party. So if we can get to the other side of clues number two and three, these are the kind of clues that don't get you all the way there. But once you are on the other side of them, things really start to slot into place. Fortunately, we do have clues for the latter half of this bridge o' clues. So let's tackle them now. Clue number four is another Christie classic. We have a time shift here, people. Ye old temporal obfuscation. Whenever Christie is explicit about the timing of a murder, we should be highly suspicious of that timing. Specifically, here we're told that the murder is said to have happened any time between seven and nine at night. That is concrete. It could not have happened before seven or after nine. But that within that window, it must have happened between 7.40 when Edward Clayton arrived at Major Rich's and 8 o'clock when Major Rich's guests began to arrive. And our deduction as seasoned Christie readers at this point is to know that, well, in that case, the murder almost definitely had to have happened between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock, <laughs> since Christie is begging us to assume that it did not happen then. And if that's the case, then who is the likeliest suspect? And I will just pause to note that this clue made me think back to my lovely conversation with forensic scientist Carla Valentine about how true forensic time windows are more like eight hours long, but we need these shorter windows for purposes of plot. And this story is an excellent example of that. An eight-hour window just would not do here. I forgive Christy the forensic inaccuracy. I'm sure she was well aware of what she was doing when she specified that two-hour window. All right, so if we're trying to pinpoint who could have murdered Edward Clayton between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock while the party was in full swing, that brings us to our final clue number five, which has to do with access. And this is actually a two-part clue because we have two issues when it comes to access. The first one is that if Edward Clayton was killed during the party when he was hiding in the chest, then he had to have been drugged. Uh, those drugs taking effect after he climbed into the chest, since he obviously would have cried out when he was stabbed if he were fully conscious. So that's one access issue. Who could have drugged Edward Clayton before he got into the chest? And then the other access issue has to do with the stabbing itself. Who could have opened up the lid and quickly done that incredibly nasty bit of work that was required stabbing Edward Clayton in the heart? Well, our deduction here is that Major Curtis was having drinks with Edward Clayton before Clayton went to Major Rich's, and Major Curtis told us himself that he didn't dance at the party, that he was the one changing the records while the others danced, which puts him right next to the chest, which we also know was concealed behind that screen from the rest of the room. And that makes this murderous plot feasible, though incredibly audacious on the part of Major Curtis. 
And I just have to note an incredibly devious bit of misdirection that Christie employs in this short story, because when Major Curtis tells us that he was the odd man out, that he was the only one who wasn't dancing, it seems that the significance of this information is that Mrs. Clayton and Major Rich were dancing the night away together, that they danced as a couple and the Spences danced as a couple. And it's a tiny but crucial bit of misdirection on Christie's part that she's pointing us in the direction of focusing on Mrs. Clayton and Major Rich, as opposed to the fact that Major Curtis is standing there in the room unobserved by these dancing couples for many, many minutes at a time. And I almost wonder if Christie didn't employ that bit of misdirection intuitively as she was writing. She probably didn't, and I have no evidence to back me up on that theory, but she is just so good at misdirection, both writ large and writ small in this way, in this story, that it just seems to come so naturally to her that whenever she's layering in these crucial bits of clues, she just has a slight fillip of misdirection, if needed, that turns our attention in just the right way. It's just so masterful. She's such an artist when it comes to this sort of a thing. And it's part of the reason that these mysteries are as effective as they are. And especially in a short story like this, because the mysteries in the short stories aren't always effective, but this one really is. For as short of a story as the mystery of the Baghdad chest is, as opposed to the mystery of the Spanish chest, it's quite, quite effective and efficiently told. So well done. And at this point, we have landed safely in the world as it actually is. Let's wrap this up. Poirot tells Hastings he has everything he needs now, save one key piece of evidence. So he calls up Inspector Jap and asks to see the contents of the victim's pockets. And among these contents, he finds, quote, a cumbersome wooden tool that has several small blades in it. And as Poirot explains to an incredulous Hastings, this is what Edward Clayton used to burrow air holes into the chest. Why? he hid there, desperate to see if his wife was really carrying on an affair with Major Rich. And Poirot theorizes that Major Curtis was the one who inflamed Clayton's mind with suspicions against his wife and Major Rich, and who suggested the whole plan to Clayton of pretending to go to Scotland and hiding himself in that chest. Poirot also guesses that Curtis was the one who told him to move the screen in front of the chest, the fake reason being so that Curtis could open the lid from time to time during the party to give Edward Clayton some relief. Of course, Curtis used one of those stolen moments to stab the poor drugged man to death instead. And this, of course, all happened because Major Curtis was in love with Margarita himself. And this way, he got to kill her husband and also get her would-be lover out of the way by framing him for that murder. And we close out this story with Poirot's quite unironic admiration for this most gruesome murder. He says, But mon Dieu, What an artistic masterpiece. It goes to my heart to hang a man like that. I may be a genius myself, but I am capable of recognizing genius in other people. A perfect murder, mon ami. I, Hercule Poirot, say it to you. A perfect murder. Epatant. Oh, Poirot. The end. It is time once again, listeners, to talk BritBox. I am so excited that I get to offer my U.S. and Canadian listeners 
a special promotion. If you go to BritBox.com and use promo code Agatha, you will get 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription. And while there are so many enticements for a mystery-loving viewer on BritBox, I've mentioned some of their newer shows, such as the Sister Boniface series, which is a spinoff of the Father Brown series, for example. I just have to highlight that BritBox recently acquired seasons seven and eight of Agatha Christie's Poirot starring David Suchet. So now every single episode of that beloved program is available to you on BritBox. If that is not a reason to go running to BritBox for a subscription, I don't know what is. So again, go to BritBox.com and use promo code Agatha for the first month off your monthly subscription in the US and Canada and go hog wild with all the mysteries at your disposal there. You know you want to and you won't be sorry. Okay, so before I talk about the one adaptation that we have for this story, I'd like to talk about the expanded Spanish version. First off, why the change from Baghdad to Spain? (laughs) Why did she have to change the provenance of that chest? Uh, Per Mark Aldridge in Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, Christie actually first considered calling it the mystery of the Persian chest before, quote, abandoning the Near East and settling on Spain as more romantic and less difficult. (laughs) That's interesting, given that Christie set mysteries in the Near East many, many times over her career. I'm not exactly sure why she was feeling like that in 1960. I suppose she did it more often earlier in her career, and perhaps the politics of the region and some of her experiences with Max Mallowan made her a little cagier about a story and a titular story at that, since they thought that it might actually be used for the title of that collection in 1960, The Christie for Christmas. So uh, perhaps for that reason, she just thought that Spanish chest would be more palatable. But One other little tidbit about the provenance of that chest. I'm getting this one from John Curran, who tells us that in her notebooks, when she was planning, they came to Baghdad, of all novels, she makes reference to a Kuwait chest that someone may have hidden. So that's a third type of quote-unquote exotic chest in which a body was concealed. And she actually used a Kuwait chest in the play The Rats, which is one of the three one-act plays that comprises Rule of Three. Um, That is a late play of Christie's I have not covered yet. I actually have not read The Rats yet or any of the Rule of Three plays. I have every intention of doing so and covering them at some point on the podcast's Patreon account. At some point, we will be dealing with the contents of the Kuwait chest in The Rats. You could always click on the Patreon link I've included in the notes for this episode if you're curious about checking out some of that bonus content. Sorry, couldn't help the plug. And I suppose I just have to accept Christie's rather vague and unconvincing reason for making the chest Spanish. While we're on Mr. Curran, I should note that he actually really liked the expansion of the Baghdad version into the Spanish version. He expresses this by way of contrast with another expansion Christie did, which he did not like. 
And that would be Christie's expansion of a Christmas adventure into the eponymous, the adventure of the Christmas pudding for that collection. Um, He wrote that the elaboration, unlike similar earlier experiments, added only words. The mystery of the Spanish chest in the same collection was a far more imaginative expansion of the earlier the mystery of the Baghdad chest. The thing is, I'm not sure I actually agree with John Curran. I don't think that this is one of Christie's better expansions. And there are a few reasons for that. So perhaps the most significant change between the two versions is the deletion of Hastings as narrator. The Spanish version is written in the third person, and Hastings is not only absent from it as a narrator, but as a character. Poirot actually laments his poor departed Hastings at several points in the Spanish version text. And I'm such a sucker for a Hastings narrated story, so already I was miffed by this. But then... What Christie does in place of Hastings is to insert Miss Lemon into the story. And normally that would be cause for celebration. But this is one of those cases in which Christie just starts ragging on poor Miss Felicity Lemon, as she sometimes, if not often, does in the text. This story might be one of the worst instances of Miss Lemon abuse (laughs) in a Christie story. We start out with a physical description of Miss Lemon. At first sight, Miss Lemon seemed to be composed entirely of angles, thus satisfying Poirot's demand for symmetry. Okay. (laughs) And then, Miss Lemon he had never considered as a woman. She was a human machine, an instrument of precision. Her efficiency was terrible. She was 48 years of age and was fortunate enough to have no imagination whatever. It's like, I get it, Agatha. You think that Miss Lemon is hideous. You think that she is a robot. You like to make fun of the fact that all she thinks about in her spare time is her filing system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just a little tired of it at this point, especially since I have Pauline Moran's performance as the Miss Lemon of the Suchet series to compare it to, which is so vibrant and subtle and layered and funny and just lots of other great adjectives. I could go on and on and have gone on and on in other episodes. <laughs> but I will say this in defense of Christie, actually, and I'm getting this again from my good friend Mark Aldridge in Agatha Christie's Poirot, the greatest detective in the world. He too notes that the description of Miss Lemon at the beginning of this story is unpleasant. <laughs> That's the word he uses to describe it. But then he says, Originally, this point was made as a reflection of Christie's description of Poirot's flat, but this was removed from the published version. In the unpublished portion, Christie described that, and now I'm reading the unpublished portion that Mark reprints in his book. The flat of Poirot's choosing was one of the most modern of its kind. It was clean, hygienic, and severely functional. The cushions in the armchairs were square, not round. The right angle, rather than the curve, was the keynote of the furnishing and decoration. Over the mantelpiece was an abstract painting, mainly composed of interlaced cubes. Poirot admired it very much. At first sight, Miss Lemon herself seemed to have been selected on the same principle. Yes, this is still unpleasant and unfair to Miss Lemon, but it just flows a little better than this rather abrupt and truncated beginning. It just gets the story off to an awkward start, and I did not appreciate that. The other thing I really like about that unpublished excerpt that Mark reprinted is the little detail about the cubist painting over his mantelpiece, because I think that places Christie's Poirot, the textual Poirot, very squarely in the Art Deco world that was created around Suchet's 
Poirot. Sometimes I feel like Suchet's version of Poirot is a little hipper <laughs> and just more artistique <laughs> than the Poirot in the text. But hey, look at this. He has a cubist painting over his mantle. That is totally something that Suchet's Poirot would have in his flat. So I really like that we get a glimpse at that unpublished bit. I wonder why Christie or perhaps her editor decided to leave it out. I suppose that shall remain a mystery. We also get at the start of the story, we are seriously only in paragraph three here <laughs> of the Spanish version. Uh, we get Poirot's thoughts on women, which are a little like Sir Mix-a-Lot's, I have to say. Here's what Christie writes. He had a continental prejudice for curves. It might be said for voluptuous curves. He liked women to be women. He liked them lush. Highly colored, exotic. Oof, boy. In other words, we are off to a rollicking start here. And here's the thing. I read this Spanish version directly after reading the shorter Baghdad version, and Christy adds almost nothing important to this longer version of the story, so it's hard not to prefer the leaner and meaner version. To me, the Spanish version feels very much like a just-add-water situation. And yes, even though Christy is absolutely the master of recycling and repurposing, that's not really what she's doing here. She's just adding a bunch of asides and descriptions and deepening a few characters and honestly not even doing that sort of expansion as well as she did, for example, when she expanded uh, Hercule Poirot and the Greenshore Folly into Dead Man's Folly. I was impressed with some of the side plots and characterization that she added to her novella when she turned it into a full-length novel, but this just felt very much like bits and pieces tacked on, and the overall effect for me just felt watered down. But I will acknowledge that it's unfair to read the expanded version directly after reading the shorter version the way I did. I think it's hard to get a good read from the Spanish version. And if I had only read the Spanish version, I probably would have thought it was great. So as I already noted, there are some name changes here. Margarita is still Margarita, but it's spelled differently for some inexplicable reason. And then, as I mentioned, Edward Clayton becomes Arnold Clayton. Uh, major Curtis, of course, our murderer, has a major name change. So that's important. He is Commander Jock McLaren. Not just a new name, but a new rank, too. I remember someone noting somewhere, it may have been Allison Light, that captains are always good guys in Christie. Of course, we have Captain Hastings, whereas any other rank may be capable of murder. Colonel, of course, and Major, and others. Um, I wonder if that holds true. I'm not sure. I am honestly thinking aloud here. So if you have any thoughts on that proposition, I would love to hear them. Also, the name of Major Rich's manservant is different. As I already mentioned, he's Burgoyne in the Baghdad version and William Burgess here. Also, as I noted, the Inspector Destoir gets changed. Our friend Jap becomes Inspector Miller, who, quote, was not one of Poirot's favorites. He was not, however, hostile on this occasion, merely contemptuous. <laughs> Inspector Miller is basically a pill. I very much missed Jap, who wasn't really present in the Baghdad version anyway, but he certainly is in the Suchet adaptation. I'll get to that in just a sec. The best I can say is that there are three things the Spanish version gets you that you don't have in the Baghdad version. The first is a thematic resonance by way of Othello as to what's happening among our main three characters who are caught in a love triangle, but of course. 
Um, there is a lot of chatter about Othello in this version, but that's okay because we love that Christie loves her Shakespeare, right? Julius Green also cites this as another connection to her play The Rats. He writes, Christie would have been working on the expanded version with its references to marital jealousy that draw parallels with Othello at a time when the idea for The Rats was already well-developed. So that's interesting. The second bonus we get from the Spanish version is a little more suspicion thrown on the Spences. The stiletto was theirs, as opposed to belonging to Major Rich, as it does in the Baghdad version. And we also actually hear from the Spences, and they're given personalities. Uh, Mrs. Spence is attractive in, quote, the modern style, which at that moment resembled an underfed orphan child. Remember that this is 1960. And Mr. Spence is described as almost ostentatiously discreet which I think is actually a great description. I know exactly what Christy means by that. And then the third thing I appreciate about the Spanish version is that it does update the setting. We have some references to phones and wires and whatnot. Not that these didn't exist in 1932, but they were certainly more common by 1960. Uh, plus the manservant character doesn't live in in the Spanish version of 1960 as he does in the Baghdad version of 1932. Christy was always very accurate about a domestic service and how it evolved or devolved through the years. And I have to imagine, to the story's credit, that the goriness of the central motif must have aged well. I mean, 1960 is the same year Psycho was released in theaters. So I like the idea that this Grand Guignol motif that she created in 1932 could be so readily updated to 1960. But that is really it. Uh, in terms of what Christie accomplishes by expanding the Baghdad version into the Spanish version. And that just is not much when it comes to a Christie expansion. But I would be remiss if I didn't delight in a few Miss Lemon moments we do get in this expanded version. Miss Lemon references her sister, who apparently also has a Spanish chest. And I had to wonder if that was the same sister who runs a boarding house where much goes awry in Hickory Dickory Dock. Could have stuffed some of those drugs in the Spanish chest over at, over at the student hostel. I also chuckled when Poirot asks Miss Lemon to make a precy about the case involving the Claytons and Major Rich. This is when Major Rich is still under arrest. And Miss Lemon refuses to include the bit about Major Rich and Mrs. Clayton stupping to use the technical word, in her precy of the case because, quote, it was a suggestion and not a proved fact. You go, Miss Lemon. Don't make assumptions about people's love lives. <laughs> also, Miss Lemon comes up with a village parallel to Mrs. Clayton. It's positively Marple-esque of her. This is from when we lived in Croydon Heath, though I have no idea who we is. I suppose it could be her parents and siblings when she was younger. And then finally, I really appreciated the way Miss Lemon refuses to comment on Poirot's musings about the sirens of the world. It was pretty funny. Here's Poirot speaking. What is that something that they possess? The sirens of this world, the Helens of Troy, the Cleopatras. Miss Lemon inserted a piece of paper vigorously into her typewriter. Really, Monsieur Poirot, I've never thought about it. It seems all very silly to me. If people would just go on with their jobs and didn't think about such things, it would be much better. Having thus disposed of human frailty and passion, Miss Lemon let her fingers hover over the keys of the typewriter, waiting impatiently to be allowed to begin her work. Love it. And then my final note on the Spanish version is that in it, we do get a glimpse of a case Poirot was working on, which is not 
a murder mystery. And it's the only time I can remember in which Poirot seems like more of a regular private detective who has to take on such mundane matters. It was very curious. Here's the passage. The mystery of the Spanish chest was, strictly speaking, no business of Poirot's. He was engaged at the moment in a delicate mission for one of the large oil companies where one of the high ups was possibly involved in some questionable transaction. It was hush-hush, important, and exceedingly lucrative. It was sufficiently involved to command Poirot's attention and had the great advantage that it required very little physical activity. It was sophisticated and bloodless, crime at the highest levels. I suppose, but it sounds a little pedestrian and mercenary for Poirot, who I thought only took on only the juiciest of cases. I just thought that was odd and worth pointing out. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans, such as yourselves, to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming So that is the Spanish version of this story. And I would love to transition now into the one adaptation that we have for both these short stories. And that would be episode eight of season slash series three of our beloved Agatha Christie's Poirot starring David Suchet. The episode is titled The Mystery of the Spanish Chest. So they chose the title from the expanded version. And it was written by friend of the podcast, Anthony Horowitz, author, producer, screenwriter, extraordinaire, not a jack of all trades, but a master of all trades, I would argue. Can't wait for the next Hawthorne book he has coming out, surely sooner rather than later. He's positively Christie-esque in his output. So our friend Anthony and the rest of the Agatha Christie's Poirot team chose to go with the title of the later expanded version. And unlike in the case of my Poirot omnibus, this is consistent because they also used the titles of the longer novella-length stories Christie wrote, Murder in the Muse, etc. So I have no problem with that. But then they used the character names from the Baghdad version. So in this episode, we have Edward Clayton. We have the manservant Burgoyne, Major Curtis, although for some inexplicable reason, he, like his textual Spanish version counterpart, Commander McLaren, has changed rank and is Colonel Curtis in this episode. And they also went heavy on Hastings here. In particular, his distaste for Poirot's self-aggrandizement and his failure to be self-deprecating, which is very much present in the Baghdad version. So we have lots of Hastings. We have a moderate amount of Jap. The one character among this family of four who does not appear in the episode is oddly the one who was so heavily featured in the mystery of the Spanish chest. That's right, Miss Lemon, who we get so much of in the expanded version, she is away on a trip. 
which leads to a few funny moments in which Hastings is trying to substitute for her. But come on, no Miss Lemon when you're adapting a story that actually uses and sort of abuses Miss Lemon a whole bunch. I was outraged yet again on Pauline Moran's behalf. But in all seriousness, as usual, this is a very, very solid adaptation that retains that brilliant core of the mystery. You can tell that Anthony Horowitz completely understands what is important about this story and what makes it work. And he really sells it. And there are lots of great character moments in between the obfuscating and then sorting out of the puzzle mystery. It's very, very good. And it has a really unusual opening. We have a black and white fencing sequence that is very intense. Here's what David Suchet had to say about it in his memoir, Poirot and Me. Chilling from the very start, it opens with a ferocious fencing match involving the mysterious Colonel Curtis, who, it transpires, might just be a British spymaster. He was played by another extraordinary actor, John McInerney, then in his late 40s and capable of conveying malice in the most dramatic way. An old friend, he was a former member of the National Theatre and had made his name in Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. And John McInerney did indeed play Mercutio in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Oh, how I love that movie. I don't know if I've ever had a reason to talk about how much I love the Zeffirelli, Romeo, and Juliet, which does not mean that I hate the Baz Luhrmann production with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Oh no, there is room in my heart for both those Romeo and Juliets, but ah, the Zeffirelli will always have prime placement in my heart. And then we cut away from this intense duel to an opera. Hastings and Poirot are attending, and at the opera, which is Rigoletto, the plot of which is cleverly woven into the themes of this very mystery, Poirot is confronted by Lady Chatterton, who makes him meet up with Mrs. Clayton, whose husband is still very much alive. And I should mention that in the episode, Margarita's name has become Marguerite rather than Margarita. (laughs) So the character renaming hijinks continue. But it seems that Lady Chatterton is worried that Mr. Clayton is going to murder Mrs. Clayton. And this, of course, is Antony Horowitz's clever way of getting Poirot in on the action before the fact rather than after the fact, as is so often the case in Christie's texts and, of course, is the case in this story. And I get why Antony Horowitz did it. It's more dramatic and interesting to watch a case unfold in real time than to be told about it in flashback. But we do have the awkwardness of Poirot being one of the guests then at Major Rich's flat while the body is sitting in this chest. And it feels like, mm, shouldn't he have known better? Though to be fair to our friend Antony, the episode does hang a lantern on this. You're telling me that the body was there? While the rest of you listened to music and drank cocktails and danced or whatever it is you get up to, yes. We also get much more of an Edith Thompson flavor in the Mrs. Clayton of the adaptation. She actually attempts to kill herself and then confesses post-suicide attempt uh, that she prayed for her husband's death and that she also talked openly with Major Rich about her husband dying. And she's convinced that Major Rich took matters into his own hands and killed him for her. But perhaps the biggest departure is the murder itself, which is actually more gruesome In this version, this is a very gruesome murder in Christie's text, but it's gruesomer in this adaptation. So in this version, poor Edward Clayton is stabbed through the eye straight into the brain, and we actually see it happen. 
when Poirot is explaining the solution to the mystery. The hole that's drilled in the Spanish chest isn't an air hole, it's an eye hole in this version. So that means that poor Mr. Clayton doesn't even have to be unconscious when the murder happens. He is pressing his eye against the hole, and then Colonel Curtis is able to mosey on up to the chest and stick his long, thin stiletto right into the hole through Clayton's eye and into his brain. Uh, The stabbing through the eye hole when it's depicted is just so brutal. Eye stuff is so gross. I was really surprised that they went there, especially in this early episode. Often in these earlier seasons slash series, they would bodlerize, if you will, some of the racier or less pleasant aspects in Christie's text, but they went in the opposite direction here. And they also did that again as to Colonel Curtis's character in this adaptation. There's this moment when a couple are putting on music at the party. The party itself is a rather informal affair. It's, you know, again, just a bunch of people in this room. It's certainly more people than in Christie's text. I think it's about 20 people, but it's still pretty informal. And there's this man and woman who I'm going to assume are the Spences (laughs) who are looking at different records and trying to decide what to play. And this is what happens. The man speaking with Poirot here is Colonel Curtis. Put on something with a bit of a fizz. These foolish things? No! Nobody's sweetheart. Yes, that'll do. (laughs) Music for second-rate people provided by the inferior races, what? That is not a very pleasant thing to say, monsieur. I'm not sure I needed a racist moment added to an Agatha Christie short story, though I will say this, there is no way that a character in a murder mystery who spouts random racist nonsense is not going to be the murderer. Unless, of course, he or she turns out to be a victim. That is very much a giveaway. So I'm not sure that that moment was a good choice. But on the plus side, we do get to see Poirot dancing. Lady Chatterton forces him to get up, and we get a close-up of his shuffling feet performing the Charleston. It's delightful. David Suchet is so good at this sort of thing. And otherwise, the mystery plays out, and certainly the solution to the mystery plays out exactly as it does in Chrissy's story. But just as the episode begins with a fencing sequence, it ends with one. So what happens is that Poirot pretends to have Mrs. Clayton arrested for the murder of her husband. And this causes Colonel Curtis to lose it and summon Poirot to the gymnasium where he practices his fencing and where he plans to, I suppose, skewer Poirot and kill him. This at least somewhat makes sense since Major Rich has been released at this point and Colonel Curtis says that he's going to frame Major Rich for Poirot's murder. And to David Suchet's credit, he looks truly terrified while the foil is being pressed against him. And this is also something that Suchet talks about in his memoir. Here's what he says. When John held a sword to my throat during the filming of The Spanish Chest, it was one of the few times when both Poirot and I felt truly frightened, for he made it so realistic that there was a moment when I almost convinced myself that he would actually plunge the blade into my throat. It shows on the screen. And indeed it does, David Suchet. It's a great sequence, despite its inherent ridiculousness. I mean, why didn't Poirot just have Jap and a bunch of his sergeants waiting in the wings? Colonel Curtis totally confesses to everything. And at that point, they could have just rushed out and protected him. But instead, Poirot has Major Rich 
appear. And then Major Rich and Colonel Curtis engage in a duel together, which Major Rich, of course, wins. He doesn't skewer Colonel Curtis, but he has him cornered. And we know that Colonel Curtis is going to prison and uh, is perhaps going to be executed for this murder. So a few other moments in this episode that I thought were worth highlighting. This is so tiny, but I love when Poirot is annoyed by Hastings putting more sugar in his tisane than Miss Lemon normally does. This I cannot drink. There must be no more than three spoons of sugar in my tisane. That is the way Miss Lemon prepares it. I put three spoons in. Then Miss Lemon must use a spoon that is smaller. And then I loved this exchange between Poirot and Jap. It's truly funny because Poirot is all inspired in this moment. And he's saying that at last he's gotten to the bottom of it all. And it's usually that moment in one of these episodes where we too are supposed to be caught up in Poirot's excitement, but Jap just cuts right through it in a very ironic way. And I laughed aloud when it happened. Chief Inspector Jap, I must ask you to trust me as you have never trusted me before. Here we go. Yes, but we have never before faced a crime that is perfect, committed with such coldness. It is remarkable, unique. I don't know why I bother sometimes. I may as well stay at home and do my garden. Who do you want me to arrest now? And we also get a shot of Poirot sleeping. And we get several depictions of Poirot sleeping in this program over the years. Uh, But in this depiction, not only are his hands perfectly resting on the lip of the bed cover, but his head is between the two pillows of the bed, which isn't even comfortable. Like, it doesn't even make sense. Why would you ever put your head between the two pillows? But of course, it does make sense because that's symmetrical. And it's just very Poirot. And it's really, really funny. It's, you know, blink and you miss it. But David Suchet just took such care with this character, as did the producers and the director of each episode and the writer of each episode. And I really, really appreciate it. And then the final moment in this episode is the button that they put on this runner as to Hastings being horrified over Poirot's lack of humility, which, again, is very much a feature of the mystery of the Baghdad chest and, of course, fits nicely into the light and affectionate handling of Poirot and Hastings' relationship in this series. So we get several moments throughout the episode, but then at the very end of the episode, unlike in either text where Poirot is unrepentantly self-aggrandizing and never learns to mend his ways, Poirot actually has an opportunity to be self-deprecating and he takes it. He actually is falsely modest. And it's a great moment, which leads to the best line of the episode. I am learning, Hastings. It is more English, yes? The humbleness? No. I am learning. I shall be the most humble person in the world. No one shall match Hercule Poirot for his humility. And David Suchet also highlights this moment in his memoir. This is what he writes about it. I was lucky, that is all, Poirot says near the end of the story, and then adds with a slight twinkle in his eye. It is more English, yes, the humbleness. There is a pause before he concludes with his tongue in his cheek. No one shall match Hercule Poirot for his humility. Interestingly, Suchet really does write humility, not humbility, which is what he actually says in the episode. 
there is an extra little joke as to Poirot's foreignness that's being inserted into that moment that he did not remember, uh, probably because it's extraneous to the emotion of the moment. And Suchet is always so keyed into the emotion when he's acting. Back to the memoir. Like Poirot, I too believe in humility, but there is a twinkle in both of us, for there is also an element of confidence, perhaps even vanity, which we both share. How could we do what we do if there were not? <laughs> and perhaps that's also why he's misremembering humility as humility, because he's so identifying with Poirot in this moment. And the humility thing is a little bit at Poirot's expense. It's just so, so charming how close David Suchet feels to Poirot. And he really means that. And he says it over and over and over again in this memoir. But he really does feel in a real way that he and Poirot have these points of commonality and in a meaningful way became the same person over the course of the quarter century in which he played Poirot. And that is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. All right, well, that is my rambling account and analysis of the mystery of the Baghdad chest, the text, the mystery of the Spanish chest, the text, the mystery of the Spanish chest, the episode. I was so, so happy to be able to wallow in this much Christie for one of the last short story episodes that I am doing for this podcast, though I do have a healthy handful ahead of me. So more to come on that front. Have no fear. In my next episode, I am so excited. I am going to be interviewing Lucy Worsley, who has a new biography of Agatha Christie coming out. That is going to be of great interest to so many of you. I have already read the biography. It is brilliant. I have so much to talk about with Lucy, who is such a sparkling, scintillating personality. The name of that biography is Agatha Christie, an elusive woman, if you would like to pre-order it. And then in the episode after that, I will be reviewing Curtain with a mystery co-host who I am still not going to reveal to you. That is going to be a big old surprise I'm going to leave for when that episode is released. Very excited for this final Christie novel to be reviewed, penultimate novel to be published, of course. And in the meantime, as I already mentioned once in this episode, if you'd like more content from me and from Catherine, you can head on over to the podcast's Patreon page. It's at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You could just click the link that I've provided in the notes to this episode. You can always email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And please do give the podcast a rating and or a review wherever you're listening to it. It really helps me out. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.